Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Engage in truth. Uh, the world is filled with lies, and it's hard to know who to believe. We always believe the Word of God because it stood the test of time, and it's uh, it grounds us for life. Uh, before I get into the message, let me remind you: two weeks from today, also is when we present Luke Proctor to you uh, for your affirmation to be our next senior minister. And I can't think of anyone that I would rather pass the baton to than Luke. You know him on the platform here when he preaches. I know him on a daily basis. Um, We live our lives together. We talk together almost every day, text and phone calls and being together. And Luke is the real deal. And he is a man after God's own heart. And I am so, so blessed to know him as my brother and successor and a dear friend, and I couldn't, I couldn't present him to you without being equally confident about his wife. Uh, I know how important it is to have the right wife to stand next to you in ministry. My wife has been that for me, and Rebecca is a woman after God's own heart, and uh, I, I, could not, I could not encourage you to affirm him if, 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 if he had married wrong, uh, but he didn't. <laughs> he married right. She saw something in him that none of us saw, and, and we, we are grateful for that. So, um, you know, Luke and Rebecca are going to be in the, the hub out there, and uh, so be sure that you know, if, you, if you've never really met them or talked to them personally and you wonder who this woman is or if he's, if he's really that short, you, you can go see him and stand next to him. You know, cameras make you look shorter sometimes. So, no, he really is that short, and... Uh, Sometimes he walks right under my arm and I put it out. It's an amazing thing. You know, he throws me under the bus all the time, and I'm still affirming him. Isn't that? I'm, a, I'm an incredible person, aren't I, to do that? Anyway, that's two weeks. Make sure you're in prayer for that. Well, you know, I don't think there's anybody who wants to be known as a shallow person, a superficial person. I think we all want to feel that. We are substantive. There is something about us that has depth to us. Uh, several years ago, there was a movie called Shallow How about a guy who only looked at the outward appearance of women that he dated. He never looked beneath, beneath the surface. And we scoffed at that because we know how easily we are prone to do that if we're not careful. Uh, we go for depth. We go for depth friends. If you have a friendship that's meaningful, you want deep conversations. Philosophers want to have deep thoughts. The coach wants a deep bench. The investors want a, want a deep recovery. Uh, gardeners want their, the, the roots of their plants and bushes or shrubs to go, go deeply. You know, we want that in our life with Christ. I so hope that there's nobody here that's satisfied with being superficial as a follower of Jesus. You know, we're engaged today with the most important, critical thing in life. And that's our walk with Christ. And if you're here as a superficial, if you're a different person here than you're going to be tomorrow at work, I so hope I can challenge you to consider more deeply about what what life is about and who Jesus is. Who better to learn from than the dearest friend of Jesus? 
He had three disciples who were closest in Peter, James, and John. But John seems to be the dearest of all. And he was an absolutely changed man because of Jesus. We want to be changed people. And we can make ourselves better in the flesh to a degree. But we cannot be transformed people without being born again in Jesus Christ. He gives us a life worth building. You know, when, when it comes to spiritual death, I mean, John knows about it. He's the son of, we know more about him probably than any other disciple. He's the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of James. He is from Bethsaida on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's a fisherman. Not only that, he seems to have a fishing business. When he was called from Jesus by Jesus, he left his hired men behind. He, was, he was, uh, had this deep personal relationship uh, with, with Christ, of course. He was an acquaintance of the high priest. He, he, he was the youngest of the 12 disciples, it appears, uh, and seems to have lived the longest, some suggest even to age 100. He seems to stay in Jerusalem for a, for a while after the church is, is established, but sometime he finds his way to Ephesus, our Turkey, where he, where he dies. Uh, remember Jesus believed so much in him from the cross. He said, John, take care of my mother. And so he was the care, caretaker for Jesus' mother as she aged. Um, his intimacy with Jesus as a friend is recognized when he sits closest to Jesus at the last meal they have together, and he's leaning there close to the, to the, the, the chest of Jesus while they're eating, reclining at the table. He was a humble man. He, he never points to himself by name, but he refers to himself as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and, and he wrote about love which shows he was a changed man. One of his contrasts that we're going to see further in the letter of 1 John is love and hate stand uh, juxtaposed to one another. And here was the same man who called down fire from heaven. Jesus, burn this town up. And Jesus said, you son of thunder. And he became this disciple of love because of the impact of Jesus on his life. And he writes, he writes the gospel of Christ's life toward the end of the 80s AD, more than likely, and then the following letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the beginning of the 90s, before he writes Revelation about uh, 95 or 96. Tertullian was an early church preacher. He lived in the 2nd century. He writes that under Domitian, D D Domitian hated John, and he, he boiled him in oil, put him in hot oil. But John didn't die. He survived that, was exiled to Patmos, where he saw uh, the revelation of God recorded for us, and then later went to Patmos. Now, whether that actually is true, I don't know. But Tertullian did live in, in close uh, proximity time-wise to Jesus. There's an intimacy about this letter. We hear this as a father writing to his kids, a pastor to his flock, to those he's deeply concerned about because, because they're at risk right now. The church is being threatened. The truth is being undermined. And so this is how he begins. I hope you have your Bibles open. I hope you have you with me either in your device or in, in, in paper form. Uh, we need to learn to use them. And so I want to encourage you to bring a Bible with you. Have your, have your devices open. Don't depend on the screen. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. 
so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, in the original language, most of this was just one run-on run on sentence. So he would have gotten a C-minus from his English teacher. But he would have gotten an A-plus by content. God wants to be deeply ingrained in your life, John seems to be saying. There's a lot of ways to summarize what he's saying in these five chapters, but I think that's one of them. He wants Jesus Christ to be ingrained, um, and he will be, he wants to be according to the reality of him in our own lives and hearts. And that's the first thing he's saying, that Jesus Christ really lived. John is now among the few eyewitnesses that would be left at the end of the first century uh, that he can still talk about as an eyewitness. His generation has died off, and he's, he's writing now to second and third generation believers. And when that happens, people can ask questions like, this is, is this really true? Did it really happen? People ask that today. They began asking it at this time. Let's see who we are. Who here is a first-generation believer? That means neither your parents or your grandparents walked with Christ. You're a first-generation. Now, put your hand up. Are you a first-generation believer, follower of Jesus? No parents or grandparents follow the Lord. Interesting. We had some in first service than not here. All right, how many, how many of you, your grandparents weren't followers of Jesus, but your parents were, your second generation believers? All right, how many of you then are third generation? Some of you have no idea what I'm asking you, I can tell. All right. Most of us, I think probably, are second and third generations. There are some first generation believers here. But by, by this time, when John's writing, he's not writing to first generation believers, he's writing primarily to second and third generation believers. They've got their own questions. I remember going to college myself. I was even at Bible college. And I remember as a sophomore, I started asking myself, am I believing this simply because my parents taught me this? Or is this my faith? And I went on a journey myself to make sure this was my personal conviction. And I wasn't just believing because it's an easy thing to believe since my parents taught me that. And there's a sense in which we all have to do that. And so these, the, the, the question the starting to rise up is coming from this false teaching that is in the area. And it's not going to come to its fullness for another hundred years or so, but it's the beginning roots of Gnosticism. The root of that word Gnosticism is no. So one of John's key words in this letter is no, because these Gnostics were questioning the humanity of Jesus. They believed that, that Christ suddenly jumped into Jesus' body at his baptism and then left his body right before the cross. So they question the whole humanity. It's interesting, in our culture, people don't question his humanity, they question his deity. But in that time, they were questioning his humanity. What it, was he real? That's why he begins this way. John sets the record straight. Doubts are creeping in. They are messing with the message. And John is concerned about that. But we have this compelling evidence. You know, we, have, we have these gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus recorded for us. We have more manuscript evidence of Jesus' life than any other person in antiquity. We have the records of historians like Josephus and Suetonius and Tacitus and Pliny the Elder. We have our very time. Our calendar is measured by Ace, by. By A.C. and D.C.? No, by, by B.C. and A.D., all right? Uh, Jesus really did. Do you hear that in his words right at the beginning? He's saying, look, we want you to know Jesus is real. He's also saying Jesus Christ is experienced. 
He's saying not only did Jesus really live, but he engaged us. We engaged with him. It's, it's one thing to drive by, by, by Lucas Oil and be kind of stunned by the size of that thing. It's another thing to be actually in the stadium watching the Colts play. It's two different things. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. John says it's one thing to believe that he exists. It's another thing to experience him fully. And he says here in verse 1, Jesus is the word of life. Not the word about life, but not just informing their lives, but he's speaking into the lives in a way that something is happening, something's being shaken, that he is moving, he's, he's active, he is, he is filtered, is permeating life. For John, it's not enough for him to be experiencing life himself. And we hear right at the beginning, He's saying, look, look, we, we, have, we have walked with him. We've been here. We've touched him. We've, we've eaten with him. We've heard him. We've watched. We, we were there with him. But he said, what we have with him still today, what I have with him, please, I want you to know that too. And that's what's going to make my joy complete. That's what he says in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. We write this to... We, Ah, so that you also may fellowship with us. We write this to make our joy complete. You know, that, there, there's something about, we know that about life, don't we? I mean, my, my son Justin and I, we have this strange thing. When we go to a restaurant that's really good, we take pictures of our food and we send it to one another. <laughs> and we salivate together, you know? But he gets to eat it, or I get to swallow, and, you know, he does. The thing is, when you experience something, the part of the joy is sharing it, right? And John is saying, look, in the way that I've known him, I so want you to know him too. I, I want you to have a testimony of faith. I want you to have this fellowship. And when your fellowship with God is like that, then we have a greater connection with one another. That's why we love to be together as God's church, God's family. You know, it's, it's not enough. We've all learned it's not the same watching on the tube, is it? It's just not the same. To be in person, there's something about being together that we talk to each other, that we, that we share. If you're new to us, I hope in time, you know, you have conversations and faith is shared. Jesus Christ, third, changes us. He, he's real. He really lived. He's experienced. And then he changes us. How do you know somebody's a Christian? You know, somebody said they'll know we are Christians by our T-shirts. Well... <laughs> I'm not sure that goes too far. It might be a beginning. But, you know, um, next week when we get into chapter 2, John gives us some real tests to know, am I truly living as a Christian? Am I a Christ follower? He'll give us three tests next week. But this week is sort of one I don't wanna, I'm not going to talk about next week, but he's introducing a test this week. It's, it's the ethical test. And so he writes in verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him declare to you, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. God is light. And there's nothing new there. The Jews understood that. That picture of God being light, you know, it was, they were familiar with that through Scripture. The Greeks were familiar that there was this higher level of understanding, a, a, a light uh, to come on in the heart, even though they were pagan in their thinking and idolaters. False teach teachers of the day were sort of blending those things together. 
and suggested that there is another level of enlightenment we need, that there is more beyond, and they sort of introduced uh, that there is a mystery language that we sort of have to know to come really to understand who God is. It was false teaching of the day. John takes this word light, and he reminds us that light isn't just about knowledge. It's about conduct as well. It's not just about It's not just about believing what the Bible says. It's about how we live this truth in lives. God isn't light because he's spiritual. He's light because he's holy. And when we welcome him into our lives, he calls us to holy living. The same thing about Jesus Christ when he is real and when he's our brother, when we live with him and for him and in his name. Don't just believe the truth, he's saying, but live the truth, do it. So years ago, you remember, this is, has it been 30 years ago or 25 years ago? I use my mouthwash and I can't do a thing with it. That's the problem today, you know? Uh, WWJD bracelets. Remember those? You probably had one, right? A lot of people didn't know what they were about. I remember Diana was counselor at elementary school and one kid on the way to school stole 25 of them. I don't think he got it. I don't think he understood it. You know, it's hard to ask that question because we think of Jesus so often just in his form and his day in his culture, not, not in my shoes. And so we have to ask not just what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were me? So if you're a school teacher, what would Jesus do if he were teaching this class? How would he engage these students? How, he would, how would he deal with that discipline problem? How would he that love that kid that is so unlovable and so unreachable? How would he deal with this unreasonable parent? If Jesus were in middle management, what kind of manager would he be? How would he, how, what would he say about his boss how, when he doesn't agree with him? How would, he, how would he walk in my shoes dealing with this job problem? How would he build morale with the people looking to him or her for leadership? What, what kind of atmosphere would be in the office because he's there? If, I were, if Jesus were on the college campus today, if he would belong to a frat, you know, how would he live in that frat? What would his behavior be like? How would he engage with frat brothers who don't share um, the same values? What would he do with liberalism on the campus? How would, he, how would he think to, and have a sieve firmly in place to think through all of this? How would he plant seeds for a different kind of worldview? If he were a high school student, a middle school student, what would it be? See, that's what we do when we live for Christ. We think, of what would Jesus do if he were where I am living in these shoes? You get the idea. Being a Christian isn't just a matter of believing. It's a matter of becoming, becoming like Christ. So what Jesus has to do fifth, he has to confront us. That's what Jesus does. He confronts us. You know, we don't hear the word sin very often, do we? We're more comfortable with dysfunction or mistakes or failures. Or a few years ago, Oxford Junior Dictionary removed the word sin from its listing because they say it was an antiquated word and a younger generation of people didn't understand what that word means. Uh, Larry King was interviewing a popular TV preacher and asking about the word sinner, and the preacher said, I really don't use that word. I just like to, like to focus on changing. 
But how can you talk about changing if we don't talk about sin? And so sin's not a popular subject. I've had people criticize me all the years of my ministry because I don't talk about sin enough. And I've had people criticize me because all you talk about is sin. So I don't know what to do with all that, except all I do know that there's a healthy balance of both in the Scriptures, that God gives us hope, he gives us direction, he calls us Allison, but he calls, he calls, he calls sin, sin. And he does address it. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. I said all that already, right? Two mistakes we tend to make that sin is not, I mean, who, who outside of our gathering or the gathering of God's people today anywhere, where will you ever hear sin? I don't hear it anywhere. In fact, we're stunned and shocked sometimes by our political leaders and their behaviors. They're so unchristlike. But the second problem we make is that sin is not a problem for me. Now, you may think, well, that's odd. Who would say that? Listen, I've been in ministry these 43 years. I've had people through those years tell me, well, I, I don't really sin. As recently as last week, I talked to a man who claims to be a Christian and said, well, I don't really sin. I said, oh, no, really? Let me follow you around, see what that looks like, you know? And John refutes both lines of thinking. The reality is we are sinners by nature and by choice. David writes, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Surely I was born sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He wasn't teaching original sin. He was saying, when I look at my life through and through, I'm a sinner to the nth degree. That's who I am. That's, that's my nature. Romans 3, there is no difference, Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin. It's a real issue. There was a regiment of German soldiers who were in charge of the Warsaw Ghetto of Jews in the 40s. And these, these were not hardened soldiers. These were, or they weren't political fanatics. They were just hardworking people. They were churchgoers. They were from Hamburg, and they dragged people from their homes there in the ghetto. They shot people point blank. They tore children from women's arms. They abused women. They, 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 they murdered people. And the records show that these, these men were given a choice not to participate. 500 were called to that Jewish ghetto. Only 15 chose not to. And what, what strikes me is the potential that's in all of us. Well, what do we do with our sin? You know, most of us will never commit those kinds of crimes. But every one of us routinely will think things that are lustful and not be concerned about it. We'll linger too long somewhere viewing something we shouldn't be viewing. We will speak crude, foul language without conscience. We will use the Lord's name in vain, and it's so familiar, we don't even recognize that we're doing it. You know, we, 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 we flirt with pornography. 
and think that's okay. You know, we can, um, we can gossip and slander people. We can tell half-truths about our side of the story and not, not sense any guilt about it. You know, we, 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 we flirt. We flirt with sin. We commit sin. And the problem is we, can, we, we so end up abusing God's grace and think, well, I, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. And we're so casual about sin. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be casual about it. We have to address it. We have to recognize it. We have to name it. And what do we do with our sin? You know, I, what I find with people is two extremes. Either they ignore it altogether or they're so obsessed by it, all they do is live in shame and guilt. It's, it seems to be one, or th- one, one of two extremes. Both are unhealthy. Thankfully, John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To, to cl- confess it is to name it, to call it out, and to lay it down. What does God do with our sin? Well, the Bible says he will forgive us if it's conditional. If, if is a conditional word. It doesn't happen automatically. If we confess our sins, and of course it has to be helpful, help, heartfelt, it has to be desire that I want to be a different man. I, I want to move forward. I, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to talk that way. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to behave like the rest of the world. I, I, don't, I don't want to judge people that way. I don't want to see that. I don't want to, I don't want to listen that way. I don't want to tell that, whatever it is. So we, he forgives us. And then he'll cleanse us. It says purify us. He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify. He'll cleanse us. He removes what doesn't belong there. He gets rid of the dirt. You know, one of my wife's spiritual gifts is laundry. You know, she's got more. But that one, she's really good at. And it is it's hard for her to, to give up on a stain. I hate it. She's the queen. Um, I find, you know, I find so often that we have this stain and we can't believe it's really blotted out. You ever put a shirt on and, and, uh, you, or a, 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 you know, a top on, you know, something, and after you get in public, there's a spot. And, I mean, you do everything you can hide the spot, right? You feel also, you just automatically feel they can see that spot, you know? And that's what it is when a sin is unconfessed, when it's unaddressed. Because we know we're seen by God. God sees that and knows it. And we try to cover up by busyness and and engaging ourselves in other things and routinely and going to church and whatever I can just to act like the stain's not there. And it's never been confessed. It's never been dealt with. It's never, we've never been on our knees saying, please, God, cleanse me and make me a different person. I don't want to stay as this person. God's forgiveness takes care of our past. His cleansing assures us of a possible future and all possible, not because God is a softy, but because he's faithful and he's just. You know, I visited Auschwitz with a friend. And halfway through the tour, uh, we said, let's go. 
We'd had enough. We could not handle the rest of that tour. It, it, it was too gruesome. Uh, the stories were cut too deeply. And when we left, the only appropriate way to drive away was in silence. Because we saw how far evil can go. And we both acknowledged that is in us. Now, I don't know what people do who have nowhere to go with their sin and guilt and shame. Well, well I guess I do, <laughs> you know. They just go on hoping no one will notice or they try to cover up or carry it around. You know, they kid themselves and just thinking it doesn't matter. Do you, do you do that? How much better to confess it and give it to the Lord? But that, that, what I'm asking today is to you, do you walk with the living Christ? Is he real to you? I'm not asking if you believe in him. I'm not asking if you like to go to church or not. I'm not asking if you like Christian music or you, 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 you're, you're glad that you, we can believe in the Bible and you read it. I'm not asking you that. I don't care if you're one day old in Jesus Christ or you've been him with him for 60 years. Is he real to you today? Are you experiencing his power? Do you know his resurrection? Are you in fellowship with him every day? Is he breathing life? Is he a word of life to you in such a way that when people see you, they know you've been with Jesus? If that can be said of you, and you can say that of you yourself today, you know what it is to walk in the light. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is with great thanksgiving and praise that we approach your throne of majesty and truth today, so grateful for the life you've given us, so thankful that we get to focus on the cross of Christ every week and be reminded of your goodness and your glory and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for being a God we can run to, to confess our sins. And that's what the cross reminds us of, Father. I pray that even today, Christ is real in the hearts and lives of all of us. May God be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.